Hello and welcome to Nightlight. We've been examining theologically the issue of why it seems so difficult to change. And in this session, I want to go a more personal direction. I know that uh, it's important for us to have a biblical foundation for what we believe and why we believe it. But Jesus also said in John chapter 3, we testify what we have seen. We talk about what we personally know. Jesus himself said that. That's a very important thing for us to be able to unpack. I, I, you know, I, I wrestle every time I come to this microphone with the struggle between knowing what to tell you that is theologically informing and strengthening to you and also what might be helpful from my own personal experience. And I don't really know sometimes uh, which one is most helpful. I don't want to bore you with information about myself or talk about myself too much because I'm not trying to communicate Clay McLean to you. But I know from such personal experience what it's like to be in this issue that we're unpacking here, to struggle with it, to, to suffer from it. And I, I deal with so many people from all walks of life who are in similar pain. And I want very much to help you and to go back to what Jesus said we testify what we know. I can only give you what I've experienced myself plus what I know from the scriptures to be true. So I've told this part of my story before, but it bears repeating in order to illustrate what I'm trying to describe. I was exposed to and then participated in the worst kinds of sexual sin before I was even 12 years old. It's hard for me to expose these things now that I'm a parent and a grandparent because I don't really want my children or my grandchildren to be exposed to this story. And yet, they're living in a world that constantly seeks to rape their minds. And so I'm... I'm more willing than ever, really, to uncover some of these issues. The enslavement of that sin that I was exposed to as a boy became my entire world throughout high school. The idea of living free from it was, to my mind, impossible to imagine. I cried out to God to change me while I still engaged in the sin repeatedly feeling no freedom to do otherwise. I don't mean to be hyperbolic when I say that the emotional pain was truly a form of hell. I mean that as a clinically accurate statement. The sense of hopeless darkness, godless impurity, emotional isolation 
was, like all addictions, uh, containing elements that go to make up the biblical meaning of the word hell. The lack of bonding to loving and wise adults formed a kind of loneliness that began driving me mad with desperation to get fixed and was taking its toll on my health in every level. Nothing ever seemed to happen to answer my cry for help. Was God not willing to hear me? Was he punishing me? No, not at all. Not at all about the punishing part. Willing to hear me, yes. The sin was wielding its own punishment. Not God. God was standing in the shadow of my darkness, hearing me, holding me, lovingly, guiding me, and keeping me in my torturous agony of pain until I chose to respond to his grace. Now that's the part that may be really difficult for us to to grasp or be willing to, to grasp. God was hearing me and he was keeping me in my suffering. Contrary to the common misunderstanding of some Christians, my choosing was not a, quote, work of my own uh, to gain salvation. It was salvation at work in me. Um, We've ruined the word salvation. It has come to mean a single event instead of an ongoing work. Uh, And I won't get into that right now, except just to say what I just said. Uh, God was saving me from myself by not responding to my demand on my terms to save me. God oversaw this whole process. He did not make me a mere puppet The real me he created in his own image was given freedom to respond to the grace he was pouring out. The pain helped move me in the direction of reality. So I thank God for the pain. And I wouldn't want to go through it again. But he was allowing that pain to drive me to the place where I would begin to choose him He didn't swoop down and rescue me from myself. But he did eventually rescue me. He alone was the rescuer. Apart from his grace, I could never have escaped. But apart from my God-given freedom to respond to him, I also would not have ever escaped. It was not a combination of God's power and my works. It was all God's grace working in me to provide me what I needed to be able to choose him. It was not instant. It was not easy. It was certainly not painless. In fact, as I just said, the pain was a necessary ingredient in the process. God was not punishing me, but he was teaching me by firsthand experience what the hell of self-centered sinful living was like. For as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become. I was exercising my power to become. And little by little, I became a different man.
Today, as I work with many who suffer similar pain due to similar bondages, I often encounter people who are angry at God, accusing him of not caring, of not listening. They say, like I once did, that they begged God to help them, but he has done nothing in response to their cries. But over and over I see the same pattern in them that I've seen in myself. On one level, I wanted God. But on a deeper, more profound, powerful level of self-will, I wanted life on my terms, my way, as I said a few minutes ago, because I did not trust God to make my life fulfilling on his terms. So I was digging a hole in a graveyard for myself. And I was not willing to engage the truth yet that was necessary to set me truly free. So pain was the necessary mercy that had to be allowed in order to bring me face to face with my sin. God was not the author of my pain. I was creating the pain for myself. So we understand better what Paul was saying in the end of Romans 7 when he says, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from the body of this death? Well, that's exactly what, what I'm talking about. And this is why Jesus said, unless you are willing to take up your cross and follow him, you cannot be his disciple. It doesn't mean, I don't think, that you're lost and you're going to go to hell. It means you're going to unnecessarily live in a lot of the fruit of hell while you're stumbling through your uncrucified pseudo-Christian life. Unless we're willing to die, we cannot know life. So the agony of my early years was his mercy and love in action. He was, I've said it four times, he was not causing the agony, but he was not saving me from feeling it. He was using it as a burning flame to separate me from my false self. That's what fire does. It separates the, the true from the, the alloy, the gold from the alloy. And being burned in that fire is liberating. But like all burning, it's also agonizing at first. Because we think the alloy that's burning is our real life. I wrote the song, Burn Holy Fire, to try to express my new heart cry to him to keep the flame burning as long as necessary in order to cleanse away every trace of the old. Actually, to be more accurate, I did not write Burn Holy Fire, but I was awakened at 3 o'clock in the morning hearing the whole song in my head and realizing it was an answer to a prayer I had prayed right before I drifted off to sleep in which I asked God to please make my pain stop. Instead, I heard that song in my head. I'd been to hell. He had come to save me from that hell. The fire was not a God-ordained torture chamber. It was a God-ordained conflict between his will and my will. That conflict created a friction in me 
that only became more pronounced every time I cried to him on one level for change, but yet on a deeper level still embraced things on my, my terms. I didn't see it all as sin, partly because I had a shallow legalistic definition of the word sin. I thought of sin as merely wrong behaviors. That's what really I'd been taught in church, sadly. I'd not seen the roots of sin in me. I'd only seen the obvious branches and momentary fruit produced by those choices. I saw the tip of the iceberg and called it the whole iceberg. I thought the tip of the iceberg was all there was, but to refer to an overused but accurate metaphor, there was a mountain holding up the relatively small visible tip of the iceberg. And that mountain was hidden, covered up. Not only was I able to hide from it, I was able to keep other people from seeing it under most circumstances. The roots producing that terrible fruit had to be cut and cleansed out of me. The sexual sin was only a secondary fruit of a core root in me that demanded life on my terms, selfish ambition, deep mistrust of God's love and goodness, envy, unforgiveness, pride. I certainly could keep going with my list. There are not these are these are not mere behaviors, by the way, they are that are easily uprooted and cosmetically covered up with new socially acceptable behavior that will please the religious culture, which is the way I had actually been living. These were core powers that had to be broken out of me. They had me by the throat. Um, Though there may have been, and probably was, some demonic element to it, I'm not speaking here of demons. I'm speaking of my old, sinful, rebellious, Adamic nature demanding that it be God and for God to do its bidding. And of course, I was not fully aware of the invisible submerged iceberg. I was not aware of how entwined all this was with my sexual and emotional confusion and insatiable hunger for what I called love. I only wanted God to make me happy on my terms. I was not yet able to see the great need in me was not rehabilitation, but death. My old way of looking at all of life had to die. Slow or fast, there was no other way but death. So, well, thanks a lot. This is really good news. You bet it's good news. It's great news. Because death is a clearing of the a, a clearing out of the old and a, a full making room for the new. So it, yes, it's great news. And I did choose, by the way, to take the slower, more painful route to my execution. But grace oversaw the process that eventually brought me to the end of my old false self. So since he is loving and good, he was answering my cry to change me by letting the conflict burn me until I was truly free. 
Yes, there are still such battles in my life that haven't been completed yet. I won't tell you about them. You have some of your own, I'm sure. But he who has begun a good work in us will complete it. And after you suffer it a while, the Lord will establish, strengthen, and settle you. Now, I can certainly understand why so many people who have come to the Lord hit a wall at some point and refuse to go further, but cling to their idea of happiness on their terms. No one wants to embrace the cross, not the real cross. Let us have the sentimental golden cross between two candlesticks sitting on an altar somewhere or the one we wear around our neck that we bought at a jewelry store, but not the rough wooden blood-covered cross with our name on it. Only when we have been allowed to drink our fill of the poisonous life of death does the cross begin to start looking attractive to us. I got to that point Though I had come to Christ as a boy, I had learned to be outwardly acceptable to some degree. Thankfully, Jesus was not merciful or sympathetic to that false, shallow thing that I presented. Now, I was not a hypocrite. If you understand the word hypocrite to mean someone who willfully fakes it while all the time is laughing at people who he's fooling, then no, I I was not a hypocrite. But I was living in as much reality as I knew, covering up a whole lot of unreality. But I could not understand myself. And I would not have been able to untangle myself even if I had understood myself. The grace that first saved me from sin as a boy, legally, now had to go deeper to actually, in, in real life, rescue and save me from sin, capital S. The metaphor of crucifixion is the same symbol as the metaphor of purging fire. Neither is attractive. Both are agonizing to the flesh. Both are necessary if the old is to die. And the old has to die, or it will kill us. Jesus said it clearly. He that will save his life will lose it. Or as one translation says, if you keep your low life, you'll lose your high life. I think the Amplified says that. There are some people who seem to have gone through this confrontation with death early and comparatively quickly. They're usually those who have known the depths of sin and are just sick of it and are not playing games and therefore are willing to embrace whatever death is required in order to know real life because they've been living in death long enough. But then there are those like me who are a murky mixture of dark and light, or were a murky mixture of dark and light, and therefore lived in fog. And as has been said repeatedly by our wiser, older predecessors, there is no heaven with a little hell in it.
God intends to save us from sin. Not for sin, not in sin, but from sin. Not because he's a legalistic moralist, but because sin is insanity. And God is not insane. So he will deliver us eventually from what is killing us. This process of holy fire is very well expressed in the words of a song written by John Moore and Randall Dennis and recorded by Steve Green several years ago. There burns a fire of sacred heat, white hot, with holy flame. And all who may pass through its blaze will not emerge the same. Some is bronze and some is silver. Some of gold, but with great skill. All are hammered by their suffering on the anvil of his will. The refiner's fire has now become my soul's desire. Purged and cleansed and purified, that the Lord be glorified. He is consuming my soul, refining me, making me whole. No matter what I may lose, I choose the refiner's fire. I'm learning now to trust his touch, to crave the fire's embrace. For though my past by sin is etched, His mercy did erase. Each time his cleansing purges deeper, I'm not sure that I'll survive. Yet the strength from growing weaker keeps my hungry soul alive. Well, you might think, man, that sounds cruel to me. No, it only sounds cruel to the old man that wants things on his terms. I used to hate those lyrics until I had gone through some of the fire and it had successfully exposed and cleansed away my self-will. And I remember hearing that song later and hearing it very differently from how I responded to it a few years before. I'm learning now to trust his touch, to crave the fire's embrace. Each time his cleansing purges deeper, I'm not sure that I'll survive. Boy, I understood that line. Yet the strength from growing weaker keeps my hungry soul alive. This is, is a process Every person must face some degree or other. God has unlimited time, abundant love, and vast wisdom to accomplish this in all of us. Jesus said we all, everyone, will pass through this fire one way or another. Mark chapter 9. Don't fear that promise or draw back from it. It's a wonderful fact that Jesus came to save us from our sins, not in our sins. He intends to make us completely his with no mixture. Think about that. How wonderful is that? No compromise. 
until none of our old life is left. But how will we ever expect to be fully free and whole as long as we tolerate, or worse, embrace any of the old life? And how wonderful that God is so wise and kind and good and faithful that he knows exactly how to bring us to that place where we long for him more than we long for our old life. Where we truly come to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Where our own will becomes aligned with his will so that what we want to be is actually what we are predestined to become. So that our will and his predestined will are the same. God is amazingly smart. <laughs> I know that's a silly way of saying it. What an understatement, but he got smart. He can actually transform us while all at the same time keeping us free to choose and to be ourselves, our true selves. Now, here's another list of scriptures that underscore this truth. We all know the, the story of Joseph. Genesis chapter 45, this whole story of Joseph is a picture of this unfolding, but it takes, it takes uh, you know, depending on how fast a reader you are, it takes a few minutes to read the story of Joseph. It took Joseph a lifetime to live it. And we're supposed to understand the process of the lifetime events, not just, well, it took me 45 minutes to read this. It should take me 45 minutes to, to get it all. And then he finally, Joseph finally sums up the story in Genesis 45 by saying to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God is not ever the source or, or uh, producer of evil, but God is so wise and so amazingly good and smart that he can take what was meant for evil and turn it for our good. Well, here's another one, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 4 through 15. This is a little, little uh, more difficult to unpack. God is talking to the Assyrians, and he says, Woe to you, Assyria, the rod of my anger. I will send you against the people of my wrath. Speaking of Israel. Yet Assyria thinks he's doing his own will and not my bidding, but only his own choices. For he thinks, I am doing this only in my own power and will. Shall the axe think it is in control over the axe man who is wielding it? Well, let it speak for itself. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 God will circumcise your heart to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Psalm 65 verse 4. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to come to you. Proverbs 16 verse 9. A man's heart makes it plans, but the Lord directs them. Proverbs 16.33. A lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 19.21 There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that is what will stand. 
Proverbs 20, verse 24. A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he chooses. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 12. You will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. Isaiah 46, verses 10 and 11. I will do all my pleasure. Indeed, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. The way of a man is not in himself. It's not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a heart to know me, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. I will give them a heart to know me, and then they will choose to return to me. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Ezekiel 36, verse 27. I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and obey them. John 1, verse 12 and 13. You were born not of the will of man, but of God. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. <laughs> the Greek word there is actually the word for drags. The same word is used in uh, uh, Matthew 11. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. I will drag all men to me. John 15, 5. Without me, you can do nothing. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And then when we all know, Acts 2, verse 23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite and fixed purpose and foreknowledge of God. You crucified by hands of lawless, wicked men. Romans 8.20, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who put it under subjection for the purpose of hope. We'll probably need to come back to that verse and spend some time on it, but we won't be able necessarily to do it here. Romans 9, verse 16. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9, 19. Who can resist his will? 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. God chose the foolish. God chose the weak. He chose the lowly so that no man can boast. Ephesians 1, 11. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Philippians 3, 21. He is able to subdue all things to himself. Revelation 17, verse 17. God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose. 
Bathing your mind and heart in these verses will supercharge your prayers, especially for those you pray for who are unusually bound or stubborn or seemingly indifferent to God or unbelieving. It's a great trap and error to get so into the idea of man's free will, quote-unquote, especially in understandable opposition to some forms of error that go in the opposite direction. But it's, it's, it's a great error if we so get into free will that we forget the fact that God is Almighty God. And if you have the idea that God is just hoping along with you that maybe someday some things will work out, and God hopes so, but you know, God can't control everything because we do have a free will. Well, just let the Word of God wash you clean from that thinking. God knows how to bring the circumstances into position to result in the transformation of those you pray for. Now, yeah, I've prayed for people that seemed to never change, but I don't know the whole story. I know my prayers were heard. I know God responded. And you may find this difficult to hear because I believe that we have all been so over-cautious about the subject of what goes on in the life to come that we cheat ourselves out of a lot of wisdom and a lot of comfort. Protestants are so allergic to the wrong-minded doctrines of the middle, uh, the, the middle Ages, such as paying money to get loved ones out of so-called purgatory, that, as is often the case, we throw the baby out with the bathwater. I believe according to the scriptures and according to the will and wisdom and goodness and love of God, that God will continue to deal with people beyond the earthly life He has the keys, by the way, to death, hell, and the grave. In case you don't know it, Jesus does not have to ask Protestant people's permission to deal with those who have died his way. That's all I'll say about that right now. Now let's talk about frustration. I don't, (laughs) I know too much about frustration. Who doesn't know something about it, some more than others? I've had a big struggle with the whole issue of frustration most of my adult life. I believe the worst a person has of this problem, the more we need the problem in order to confront our character flaws. Because frustration comes out of a deep character flaw. Because it's Evidence of a lack of patience, which is evidence of a lack of faith, which is evidence of a lack of humility. We all know something about it, but some, I, I said, like me, uh, we, we know more about it than we should. And that's frustrating. <laughs> uh, what do I mean by frustration? Uh, I don't mean the shallow daily irritations of a stuck stoplight or slow traffic or a computer that's extra slow, although for me these are all 
big frustrations that bring out the very worst in me at times. I would like to really invent a chip that I could put in my computer that causes it to be able to feel pain so that when I slap it, it gets the message. But anyway, what I really want to examine concerning frustration is much larger than these silly things I've talked about, especially with regard to our present subject of wrestling with the mystery of why change in us is so difficult. Remember a few minutes back when I told you of the young man I was trying to help a few years ago who became so angry at God because he said, quote, it seems like God was saying, if you do the right thing, then I'll help you. And his response was, if I could do the right thing, I wouldn't need help. Well, this has a lot to do with the subject of deep frustration. This present world, as it now is, has a built-in frustration element placed in it by God. Not the devil, not mere human energy or lack of it, but God himself has put this in place. Look back at a verse that I mentioned previously, and I said when I read it that we may need to revisit it if we have time. That's Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation, that's all of nature, was subjected to frailty or futility or frustration. You'll find all three of those words in various translations. Not because of some intentional fault on the part of creation, but by the will of him who so subjected it. Why did he do it? In hope that nature itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, if you read that verse, it, it makes a statement, but it doesn't make the statement understandable. It's, it's not logically uh, apparent how frustrating creation produces hope. It's a, a, a way oversimplified statement about the second law of thermodynamics shows that things disintegrate if they're left to themselves. In other words, cold never moves toward hot. Hot has to move towards cold. Less energy cannot inform more energy. The higher energy must enter into the lower to make changes uh, for good. A hole can't dig itself, and you can't fix yourself. God has evidently purposefully set in this present system as it is a frustrating hindrance to our independence and our self-improvement. It shows up in the physical world, in, like I just said, the second law, law of thermodynamics, which is a very difficult law for hyper-evolutionists to explain. We all need a refrigerator, don't we? Things rot without purposeful input to resist the rot. And uh, as it is in the physical world, so it is in all of nature. Things go wrong. We go wrong. Relationships, plans, businesses go wrong. 
We feel the helpless anguish of doing our best only to eventually fail. Why would God build into the very fabric of things such a reality? Well, Scripture tells us it was in hope. And as we have stated many times, hope in Scripture never means, I hope so. It means a future guarantee of ultimate good. And as I have quoted a dozen times just in this study, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. He will put in you whatever energy he needs to put in you to bring about that transformation. But the reason frustration is a built-in element in this present world system is as a safeguard, a safeguard against arrogant independence, prideful self-willed conquest of things. When man fell, he did not lose his godlike abilities altogether. He could exert them to devour everything and everyone around him. Look at how we tend to do things. We will devour the tree of life on our own terms if a flaming sword is not placed in our way. We would build a tower of Babel that reaches to the heavens for our own glory and conquest if our plans were not hindered. Whenever God gives men over to their own lusts, quote, unquote, as it says in Romans chapter 1, you see the results. When God says, have it your way, I'll take hands off. I will no longer resist you. I will let you do things according to your choice. Romans 1 is what you get. There's nothing evil we will not do as humans. So frustration is a gift of mercy. It hinders us from willful yielding of power without wisdom. Or I should say, wielding of power without wisdom. Uh, we yield power because of the grace that comes from frustration. Or we wield power if we think we can do it on our own, uh, and that means there's no grace involved. We're just wielding our own energy. Our faltering, our frailty, awakens a humility that causes us to bow, to ask, and to relate to God as God. To the degree we do, then God is able to pour abundant grace on us, which is the inflow of his power to help us do what we cannot do alone. But the genius of this setup is that God can make us dependent on his grace at the same time he is securing our ability to freely choose. He's able to do both. It's amazing. Makes you want to worship. Because God is not interested in mere robotic obedience to a predetermined program. He is forming mature sons and daughters. Why? Well, for reasons so great that Eye has not seen nor ear heard the things which God is preparing for us who love him, but they have been revealed to those who want to know them by the Holy Spirit. What is frustrating you right now in your life? 
I don't mean merely your slow computer. There, there I go again. I mean, that really frustrates me, slow computers. But the tension and even rage inside that s- seemingly small hindrances to progress stir up in you. What is God after? Well, whatever it is, God is not ever your problem. You know, when you get angry at NIH, I'm, I'm talking to Clay now, when you get angry at inanimate <laughs> objects, <laughs> like what I said about putting a chip in my computer that makes it hurt when I slap it, when you get angry at inanimate objects, you're, who are you really angry at? The creator of inanimate objects. I don't mean Hewlett Packard. I mean the creator, capital C. God's not interested in mere temporary victories if it means the expense of a long-term greater victory of your character being conformed to his image. He's willing to let you suffer, struggle, hurt, experience disappointment, and even what may appear to you, he, he will allow huge losses if in the process you turn to him not out of desperation as a last resort, though he is so good, he will even respond to that, but out of an ever-increasing confidence that he has your best interests at heart and his ultimate plan for you is goodness beyond anything you could ask or think. So, How will you deal with all this? Hearing all this may frustrate you. (laughs) If it does, that's a good place to begin again. Begin again. As Father Michael Scanlon wrote many years ago in his book on self-acceptance, quote, He who would make progress must be willing to begin again. I never make New Year's resolutions because for many reasons I'm not interested in any any of that. Uh, To me, that's just a built-in prerequisite for increased frustration. (laughs) But I have often had to resolve to begin again, start over. What is it in your life that you have prayed about and struggled with and fought over I'm talking about big things. I'm not talking about the little... The little things have their place. They're important. But the little things come out of the root of the big thing. Um, Most of the time. Just like my anger at the computer. It, It comes out of other things I won't get into right now. Probably never will tell you. But I'm aware of it in me. But uh, in our closing times, to get, moments together here, uh, we, we've talked about a lot of scripture. We've talked about a lot of heavy theological and philosophical issues. But bottom line is all of that's important. But what does it ultimately say to you personally? And what does it do for you in helping you become who you were meant to be. That's far more important. 
I am always, always very concerned that what we do here in this hour together doesn't become mere academics or or anything that can just be put on a shelf and uh, treated like, well, more mere information. I long for you and me to become conformed into his image so that we, wherever we are, whatever we are doing, whoever we're relating to, we are salt and light in the midst of darkness and rot. We are life in the face of death. We are truth in the face of lies. Uh, We are not trying to be we just are because that's who we are because we're so in union with him that he flows through us without us ever even having to be conscious of it. And in order to get there, the frustrations of life, especially those frustrations related to things that you thought God wanted you to do, When those things are frustrated, it's because God is more interested in you becoming than he is in you being satisfied with your religious service. Father, I pray for every man and woman listening to my voice right now. Uh, I'm preaching to myself here. I could listen to this message and really get a lot out of it if I just could ignore who's speaking. (laughs) Father, I pray for all of us that we would come to the place of letting you have your way with us in such a way that uh, you don't have to frustrate us. Help us take the promise of God into our heart and dwell on them. See how far apart our head and our heart may be from each other. Our head may be full of all the right religious responses, but on a deeper, more profound level, the core expectation of good from you is dormant or even hostile to you. And when frustrations come and you don't respond, we do respond with reactions And this is a great, strong signal of a double-mindedness in us that makes us unstable in all of our ways. And the fruit of the instability of that may be the very inconsistency of our character that causes you to have to frustrate our plans. And the cycle will keep occurring again and again until by faith we choose to break it. And Lord, we do now by faith choose to break it And we break it by first giving you thanks, our Father, for every good and perfect gift which comes down from you. We give you thanks. We give you praise. We give you glory. We honor you, Lord God. We honor you, our Father. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your cross. We thank you for your resurrection. We thank you for the many blessings which you have constantly poured out and been able to give us. For ultimately, that is all you want to give, is blessing. You only frustrate that which needs to die so that the fullness of life can flow. And we trust you for that flowing fullness of life wherever we finally yield 
to what we've only been frustrated at so that in the yielding we can receive the inflow of life that will then take us higher, further up and further in till we are completely free and fully home with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen. Let the Lord be glorified.